Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us on this crisp February morning. We are, as always, so excited to have you. Yeah, especially for today. It's going to be a big one, but it's going to be one that, you know, we've done cases like this in the past. You can tell by the title and exoneration. Um, These are ones that we usually get pretty passionate about, and I think rightfully so. So, yeah, we got a really fascinating one for you today. It's it's heartbreaking, but it's it's just so intriguing. Yeah, and you know, honestly, it kind of came at a really good time unintentionally because at least unintentionally for me, I'm not sure if you planned it really well, Katie, but due to the popularity of the docu series on Netflix, I think it just makes it more appropriate. And even though I unfortunately did not get a chance to watch the Netflix docuseries due to the fact that they changed their whole password um, system. I've been coasting on my mom's Netflix since probably about 2015. And that got me through college and it got me through most of being out of the home until approximately one month ago when suddenly I needed it the most (laughs) for this podcast. And uh, now they're making it so like you can't, share Netflix accounts. So they basically make you buy more. Uh, so I was unable to watch this docuseries surrounding this case, but it's a very popular docuseries that came out, I think not even recently, it was like 2020. Yeah. And suddenly it's been very popular. So it, we're doing this at a good time. Yeah, I agree. Big thank you to Paula A, who suggested this to us via email and mentioned the docuseries to us. So thank you, Paula A. Thank you, Paula A. That's really helpful and definitely piqued our interest because, man, this is quite the case. And it kind of, honestly, this is one of those things that like Katie really goes off on and I love it. (laughs) So it came to no surprise to me that when we were going over our research, I felt quite small in comparison, because I felt like I had very few details. And I love it. I love it. So that being said, this episode's going to be long, but it's going to be good. And I think having that Netflix series plus all of the other information from other sources is going to make it a lot more detailed and a lot more in-depth than you can just get from one source. So I think that'll make it really fascinating. Hell yeah, definitely. So I would recommend sticking around, y'all. And without further ado, today we will be covering The The Exoneration of Sean Ellis. Katie, Haryush, let's hear what you got for sources today. Sure. I had information from the New England Innocence Project, law.umich.edu, which is the National Registry of Exonerations, 
Esquire.com, The Guardian, UMass Lowell, JusticeForSeanEllis.com, which is a website created by Elaine Murphy, whose son grew up alongside Sean, and she made the website prior to his exoneration to spread the word and advocate for his release, as well as, of course, Trial 4, which is a docuseries on Netflix about this case. Awesome. I, too, use the New England Innocence Project, one of our favorite organizations. I used Esquire, Boston.com. I used a law document from Law Justia, and I, too, used the website Justice for Sean Ellis, which was a fantastic resource. Very detailed, had a lot of documents on it, had a lot of information. It was fantastic. So, guys, if you have some time and you want to check that out, I would highly recommend it because the passion this woman put into this website and just for someone that her son knew growing up is amazing. She really put a lot of care into it. It was great. So guys, to tell this story of Sean Ellis and his exoneration, we got to go back quite some time, as we always do with these stories. And it's going to be really just one tragedy after another. On Sunday, September 26th, 1993, 27-year veteran of the Boston Police Department, Detective John Mulligan, was in his unmarked Ford Explorer outside of an all-night Walgreens in the Roslindale section of Boston, Massachusetts. It was roughly-ish 3 a.m., and Detective Mulligan was asleep in his vehicle. Listen, we all know how we feel about cops. However, I relate to this sentiment. If you're sleeping, you know, if you're sitting outside Walgreens, you're on the job, but it's 3 a.m. and all you're doing is just watching the darkness, I can see how someone may fall asleep. So while this car wasn't marked as a police vehicle, it was obvious that Mulligan was a police officer. He had a uniform on and like an orange raincoat that signified that he was with the Boston Police Department. It was around 3.30 that an employee from the Walgreens left the store. He was on his break and he decided, you know, he's just going to go to the Dunkin' Donuts, get a coffee, as you do the donkeys around here. And, you know, he saw Detective Mulligan in his car. This was something that Mulligan did often. It wasn't a new police detail. It was just part of their contract with the store, whatever. He saw that he was sleeping, whatever. Good night, officer. Sweet dreams. Who cares? So he goes to his donkeys, he gets his coffee, and he's coming back, whatever, his break's going on. It's about, you know, 3.45, whatever, he's heading back. And as he's getting closer to Walgreens, he looks at the police vehicle and he notices Detective Mulligan, but he notices something a little different this time. When he looks at Detective John Mulligan's face, it's covered with blood. So he runs into the store, it's about 3.49 right now, and... He calls 911 because clearly something is wrong. This man's face is messed up. It's covered in blood. It's barely a face. Something's happened in the short amount of time that he took to go on his break. Paramedics arrive quick. Of course, you know, when they hear that an officer is shot, understandably, people scramble. They're going to run to that scene no matter what time of day it is. And that's fair. So they get there really fast. And unfortunately, no matter how quickly they got there, when they arrived, they discovered that John Mulligan had been shot several times in the face. He was most certainly dead. 
Notably, as well, his holster was empty of his department-issued handgun. And that will become important later. That's why I mention it. The door to the passenger side of the car was locked, but the driver's side was unlocked. An autopsy later revealed that the gun had been aimed up John's nose at very close range execution style. He had been shot five times in the face, almost in the shape of a cross. And you know, no matter how you feel about cops or any person, that's really scary and sad. Because man, just the thought of being asleep and having someone very quietly, very sneakily bring that to your face without you even knowing. And even if, no matter who he was or how he was, you hope he wasn't awake and never know. Like, he never knew what was going on, because that's brutal. And so, of course, like I said, when they called 911 and were like, there, there's an officer shot, same deal with afterwards. An investigation was immediate. They were like, there's an officer shot and dead. Who the hell could have done this? Like, this is a massive crime, of course. So an investigation was immediate. And with this sudden probing into Detective John Mulligan's life, who could have done such an awful thing? Why? You know, a bright light kind of shined directly into the exact kind of police work he did and maybe kind of pointed at some possible motives of murder. And it kind of showed that maybe, perhaps, the 27 years on the force weren't always squeaky clean in his demeanor. It turns out Detective Mulgan was known to have made a few enemies while on the job. And that's fair of any police officer, because they have a tough job to do. They make a lot of arrests. People don't ever agree with their choices because it's always at the fault of someone else. Fair. But um, uh, he made enemies because he was a dick to a lot of people unnecessarily. The thing was with him is that, and we'll get into it later, but he was known to make a lot of false arrest lawsuits and known for citizen brutality, which is awful. He was a part of a small group of officers who were record holders for, quote, the largest number of civilian complaints against them, which, you know, I always want to be good at at something. I always want to have a talent or like have an award or just be known. That's not what I would want to be known for. So unfortunately, even in death, the investigation surrounding what happened just kind of proved and showed that he had some troubles with his job and it just brought it all to light. And even though he had been a piece of garbage in his life, he of course had his boys in blue to back him up as you would. And the investigation was swift, and answers were immediately sought, because of course. And there were witnesses available, and there were teammates ready to go, and it was perfect, and everything was just lining up perfectly so he could just get his justice, because he was a police officer. He was a longtime police officer, and no matter what he did while he was a police officer, he still deserved to have his case solved, which is true. He did deserve that. Because nobody should be shot and killed like that. But it just started tumbling and tumbling into what would be a decades-long mishandling of a man's life. Yeah, yeah. And it seemed like how everything unfolded with this case and solving his murder was a little too perfect. Little too perfect is exactly how I would put it. 
Exactly. Rosa Sanchez was one of the last customers in the store before the incident. She had arrived at the Walgreens with her husband shortly after 3.05 in the morning to buy soap. And she said that she observed a young black male crouching down next to John Mulligan's vehicle as he slept. Hmm. When she left the store at 3.25 a.m., the man who was crouching down was now standing at a nearby payphone with another black male. Hmm. Ebony Chung had also arrived at the Walgreens at right around the same time as Rosa, and she too told police that she saw John asleep in the car and two black men walking towards the nearby payphone. Mm -hmm. Joanne Samuel had gone to the Walgreens with her boyfriend at just around 3 o'clock in the morning and saw John Mulligan parked where he usually does on his security detail. Mm -hmm. Again, it's very well known that he does this. He is very well known to be asleep while he's doing this, but... You know, people who frequent this Walgreens at all hours know that John Mulligan is going to be parked in his car, mm-hmm. in his usual spot, on security detail, mm-hmm. likely asleep. Right. Also, why are so many people going to Walgreens at 3 a.m.? That's what I... It's like popping. Did that cross your mind when yeah, you were reading this? Yeah, like popping. Because there was a lot of people getting very menial items... A bar of soap at 3 a.m.? Is it that vital at 3 a.m.? Okay, it's fine. Just, I would be like... Screw it. I'm going at fucking 9 a.m. Like, come on. I'm going to sleep a little longer, you know? (laughs) Joanne told police that she observed a white female sitting in the passenger seat having a heated conversation with John. Interesting. This woman was still there when they left the store 10 minutes later. (laughs) A man who lived right over the street from the Walgreens told police that at exactly 3.30 in the morning, he woke up to the sound of a diesel engine. Okay. When he was interviewed a second time, he told police that he woke up at 3.20 a.m. Mm. He then looked out the window to see two men get out of a 1987 brown Volkswagen Rabbit. He reported that the car had tinted windows and that the men walked away out of his line of sight. He thought that they were dumping an abandoned car, so he walked over, saw a woman in the back seat, asked if she was okay. She was like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> like, we're good. Thank you. He goes back inside. Several minutes later, he hears the car door close and then looks out the window again to watch the car pull away, but with its headlights off. Mm -hmm. A delivery driver had also seen a brown Volkswagen with tinted windows and two black males in the front and a woman in the back on the same road as the Walgreens. This is when police realized that this car must contain the people responsible for the murder, and they put out information on the car to ask for the public's help to track this car down. In the meantime, they dusted John Mulligan's car for fingerprints and recovered 17 prints. The most clear prints they found were four prints left at the same time by the same hand on the driver's side door. Almost like whoever grabbed it, like opened it and shut it really quickly and Mm. left four really clean prints. Mm. So this will be important later. It's interesting that they knew it was all at the same time. I guess it makes sense, but that's cool that they could do that. Yeah. On September 29th, 17-year-old Celine Kirk and 23-year-old Tracy Brown were found murdered in Tracy's Boston apartment. Found in the apartment was a photo ID of 19-year-old Sean Ellis, who had recently moved into Tracy's apartment. He was also Celine and Tracy's cousin. David Murray, Sean, Tracy, and Celine's uncle, told police that Sean told him that he suspected Celine's ex-boyfriend, 18-year-old Craig Hood, and that he was responsible for the two murders. Mm. The next day on September 30th, detectives found the brown Volkswagen matching the description of the car seen near the Walgreens, 
although the license plates had been removed and the windows were covered in scratches and residue, which led them to believe that the tint had hastily been removed. Hmm. The vehicle ID number led police to a man named Mark Evans, but Mark told police that 18-year-old Terry Patterson was the one who usually drove the car. Now, I know we just threw a lot of names at you. It will become more clear. But basically, Celine, Tracy, and Sean, cousins, Celine, Tracy, were killed three days after John Mulligan was found dead in his car. Sean told his uncle that he thought an ex-boyfriend of his cousin killed the cousins. And then that car was found, and then we introduced another person. And that other person, Terry, is friends with Sean. And they're all, like, 18 to 23. So it's, like, a really small age range. Mm -hmm. It can be very confusing. I was going through it, I was like, okay, so Sean. And there's Terry, and there's Craig, and then there's and there's David, and then there's all oh, there's Brazil, and there's well, it's like very confusing. It's like you need a bulletin board and the red string yes. to like link everything. Yes, yeah. Also on September 30th, the same day that they found the car, Sean Ellis was first questioned by police, one of whom was Detective John Brazel. Sean told police that on the night before the murder of John Mulligan, he had rode his bike to hang out with some friends on Hansborough Street in Dorchester, Massachusetts. He had called Tracy Brown, his cousin, at just after two o'clock in the morning to let Tracy know that he would be headed home soon just to, you know, give Tracy the heads up. Like, hey, it's pretty late. Mm -hmm. I'm coming home. Mm -hmm. Not somebody breaking in. Right. It's be right. Don't panic. Tracy was like, oh, Sean, while I have you on the phone and while you're headed home, it would be really great if you could grab some disposable diapers on the way back. And Sean was like, yeah, no problem. 18-year-old Terry Patterson, the driver of the Brown Volkswagen, was also at this gathering of friends and very kindly offered to give Sean a ride to the nearby Walgreens that they knew was 24 hours so that Sean wouldn't have to ride his bike there and home at 2 o'clock in the morning. Very kind. Sean told police that the boys arrived at Walgreens. They went to the payphone to call their friend named Harriet Griffith. He gave police Terry's pager number so that they could get a hold of him so that he could tell them the same story. Sean then says he bought the diapers, went home, and that the diapers were still on Tracy's windowsill at the apartment. Mm -hmm. He also said that his cousin Celine was the female in the back seat that mm -hmm. witnesses had said they saw and that guy had even approached. Yeah. It was like, hey, are you all right? And she's like, yeah, I'm literally fine. Yeah. After denying any involvement in the murder of John Mulligan, police released him after six hours of questioning. Mm-hmm. As Sean's attorney later said, who willingly puts themselves at the scene of the crime if they're guilty? Honestly, a very good point. And that's not a really good tactic to try and trick a police officer into thinking you're innocent. Right. Like, yeah, I was there that night, but I got diapers and went home and I don't know anything about the murder. Like, hello? Okay. Right. Sure. Police located the diapers along with the receipt from the Walgreens, showing that the purchase was made at 3.01 a.m. on September 26th. Mm -hmm. So this is all adding up. Very concrete piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. On October 3rd, Terry Patterson and his attorney, Nancy Hurley, met with police. 
Terry told them the same exact accounts of events as Sean. You know, they used the payphone. Sean went inside to buy the diapers. He also told police that, yes, he was the main driver of the Volkswagen Rabbit with tinted windows. Mm. Terry then said they left the Walgreens, drove to a dead-end side street so the two boys could smoke a blunt. Then they got out of the car to pee in the woods really quick, got back inside, and left. This also almost exactly lines up with what the witness saw from outside his window mm-hmm. when he thought that the car was being stolen and abandoned mm-hmm. and why the two boys were walking away into the woods and then the female was left alone. Mm-hmm. And then within a few minutes, they got in the car and drove off. Right. At the end of the interview, a detective asked Terry, quote, were you the trigger man? To which Terry replied, no. Okay, great. Detectives then worked on setting up two arrays of photographs, each one with eight photos. One array had Terry's picture, and the second array had Sean's. So, on October 5th, a little, a few days after John Mulligan was killed, and even less than that, those two cousins of Sean Ellis were killed in their apartment, police were setting up those two photo arrays that you just mentioned, Katie. Now, we mentioned earlier this 19-year-old witness, Rosa Sanchez, who had gone into Walgreens at around 3 a.m. with her husband to get some soap. Well, she was brought in on this day, October 5th, to look at these two lineups, okay? Now, here's the thing. Let's talk about something really quick, and this is really important. So, Rosa lived with her aunt. Her aunt was in a relationship and had a child with a man named Kenneth Acera. Kenneth Acera was a detective for the police department, just like John Mulligan. What? Crazy. Now, here's the thing. Detective Acera worked pretty closely with Detective Mulligan and had actually been involved in several questionable incidents with him. Detective Acera also had a partner, Detective Walter Robinson, who was a part of this little group of men with also questionable actions. To round out this party, another colleague, Detective John Brazel, spent a lot of time with these three other men, and together they had all been involved in some incidents that may make them look like assholes and kind of corrupt. (laughs) So just to kind of walk it back, Rosa was brought in by her step-uncle, who she lived with because he was dating her aunt, and she was brought in in his personal vehicle to look at a photo lineup regarding a suspect in the murder of her step-uncle's good friend and colleague. Did that clear it up a little bit? So she's in here. She's looking at the lineup. There's eight images in each lineup. She's in there with these three detectives or whatever. She's given a pass-through of this one lineup, and she's like, "Mm, I don't know. I just, you know, she's trying to identify the man she saw crouching next to the vehicle before Detective John Mulligan was shot in the face. She's looking at it. She doesn't know. She looks at a man and she picks one that was neither Sean Ellis or Terry Patterson. And obviously this was not what Detective Sarah wanted. So her uh, quote, Uncle Kenny, which is what she called him, took her out to his car with uh, Detective Robinson. They went out to his car and just gave her a few minutes to calm down because apparently she was weeping. Apparently, this is just what a witness account say, whatever. 
Reminder, she's alone in this car with her step-uncle and his colleague and best friend in the middle of choosing a photo of the man she saw before a police officer slash her step-uncle and that colleague's other best friend was killed. That's a little sketchy. Right, and the fact that she was brought in personally to do this. In a personal vehicle of her step-uncle. Right, and even worse is that one of the first photos that she saw in this array, she recognized that person and she was like visibly upset, crying, shaking. Mm -hmm. She goes, oh my God, this is the man that used to stalk me. (gasps) And so they're like, oh, okay, like hush, hush, calm down. Let's go have a pep talk in the car. Mm. What? Yeah, no, that's not appropriate. So corrupt. So after they talked in the car, about five minutes later, Rosa came back into the police station and she had supposedly, quote, changed her mind. So she was shown the exact same photo lineup, unchanged, and this time she pointed to Sean Ellis and decided that this was the man she saw crouching. David Murray, who is Sean, Tracy, and Celine's uncle, was interviewed now a second time by police. David said that when Sean came out of the Walgreens after buying diapers, he found that Terry had moved the car to the dead-end street, where Terry told police during his account that they were smoking a blunt. Mm -hmm. David then told police that Terry came running over to Sean, like, we gotta go, we gotta go, get in the car, get in the car, we have to go. David said that Terry told Sean that he shot someone and handed Sean two guns. Mm. What I will add Mm. is that David Murray was out on parole at this time. Mm. Who do you think is extraordinarily vulnerable to police manipulation, who do you think is, like, the last person that would want to be questioned by police? Hmm. Would it be someone who's out on parole? What? What? (laughs) Exactly. Okay. And this is actually a really, not commonly used, but it's a pretty popular police tactic for manipulation. Because they have these people who are out on parole in the palm of their hands. Awful. They can have them say whatever they want. It is so easy for police to use them because all they have to do is call their parole officer, yep. who's a colleague of theirs, most likely, and have them sent back to jail for some bullshit. Mm-hmm. Terry Patterson was arrested for first degree murder, armed robbery, and two counts of illegal possession of a firearm. And Sean was arrested on the same day, which is October 6th, for the same charges. Both boys were arrested immediately after their murdered cousin's funeral. Awful. Police believe that the two boys worked together to steal John Mulligan's gun, shoot him in the face, and run, but they did not say who they thought shot John at the time of the arrests. So insane. Also on the same day, October 6th, Craig Hood, Celine's ex-boyfriend and the man who Sean said killed Celine and Tracy, was arrested for their murders. He confessed in exchange for a reduced sentence and said that he and Celine got into an argument about a gold chain and that he killed her. And then right as he was done murdering her, Tracy entered the apartment, saw the scene, mm-hmm. tried to leave, mm-hmm. and then he shot her as well. Oh, that's awful. He was sentenced to 15 years for each murder for a subsequent 30 years, of course. Wow. On October 7th, police located John Mulligan's gun, as well as a 25 caliber pearl-handled pistol, buried under leaves in a vacant lot near Sean's home. Hmm. Further investigation and ballistics revealed that the pearl-handled pistol was the murder weapon used to shoot John, 
not his police-issued, you know, work mm-hmm. gun. Right. It was this pearl-handled pistol. So mm-hmm. they're like, where did this come from? Right. On October 18th, Rosa Sanchez picked Sean out of a lineup again, but this time an in-person lineup, and identified him as the man she saw crouching down next to John's car. However, Sean was the only person in the lineup who was also in the array of photos, which is, this is a very common police tactic because it tricks your brain into recognizing someone and then you think, oh shit, yeah, this person does look familiar to me, but you can't place why they look familiar. Mm-hmm. You know, you're thinking, oh my God, they must look familiar because I saw them at the scene of the crime right. and this is my time to shine and help these people solve a murder. Yeah. Not just any murder, but my step-uncle's BFF's murder. Right. A lot of pressure on a 19-year-old girl. Yeah. And your brain is thinking, like, oh, my God, this person looks familiar. Because technically, they do look familiar. You saw them in a photo lineup. Right. And Sean's attorney later pointed out that a video of Sean's arrest was blasted all over the news, all over the TV. And, of course, this happened prior to the live lineup. So... Anybody watching TV or the news or walking by, you know, a grocery store and seeing his face plastered on the front page of a newspaper is also probably going to pick him out of the lineup because, of course, he looks familiar. Yeah, exactly. Later that same month, Terry Patterson's attorney received a copy of the affidavit that had been submitted supporting a search warrant. The affidavit said that in Terry's police interview, when asked if he was the triggerman, he nodded his head yes. Which, as we know, is a bold-faced fucking lie, because he stated, no, you said that, clear as day, when asked that question. And his attorney, who's receiving this affidavit, is like, wait a second, who do they think they're fooling? I was sitting right next to him, and he said, clear as day, no, it didn't shake his head yes, it didn't do anything. And then she immediately contacts both the prosecutor and Sean's lawyer Mm -hmm. to give them the heads up that the affidavit had been falsified mm-hmm. to implicate Sean. And as a result of this, the two boys had separate trials. Crazy. So for Sean, obviously the whole time he's like, listen, I told you where I was. I told you who I was with. I told you why I was at this Walgreens. You have the receipt. You have the diapers. Why would I be like, hey, this is where I was, but I didn't shoot them. You know, like, come on. Like, why would he just say that, but then be like, I'm not guilty. He's not lying. He's telling the truth. He's stuck with it. But yet the prosecutors were like, no, like we have our guys. We just have them. Because that would be easiest, right? Case closed. You pick up two black guys and you say, you shot the police officers. Wipe your hands clean. Done. Easy peasy. And another one in the books. Great. And so the prosecutors, you know, they had the guys at the Walgreens. And that could be it. So they came up with a theory to kind of piece it all together, make it nice and pretty, and that was it. The prosecutors claimed that they thought that the two teens came up with a plan to steal Detective Mulligan's gun when they noticed him sleeping in the SUV. You know, they had come to Walgreens to get the diapers. Very true. Maybe even that they had gone in, got the diapers, and when they were leaving, saw him in the car with the gun, perhaps, and that's why they still have the diapers. Sure. But... The prosecution said maybe, you know, for however they planned it, 
they say that the pair got back in the car, whatever, and they drove it around the corner, parked it where there was a neighborhood where it couldn't be seen, walked through the woods adjacent to the Walgreens quietly, you know, unseemingly. And then they came up beside the car with the sleeping officer and then shot him point blank and killed him. The craziest thing, though, about all of this, like you said, Katie, they had two separate trials. So Sean Ellis had trial and then Terry Patterson had a trial. Well, it took three trials to convict Sean Ellis. He had two mistrials. One was in January of 1995, and the second was in March of 1995. Both led to mistrials. Crazy. And while that's happening, Terry Patterson is getting his own trial in the background, which is honestly kind of conflicting for jury members, perhaps, which part of it, the mistrials, we because of the juries. So I find that really suspicious and poorly thought out and planned out. Yeah, it was like some shit out of 12 Angry Men. Like, yes. arguing and like, what are you talking about? You're racist. He yeah. didn't do this. And they're like, I'm not racist. The evidence right in front of us. Like, they were going at it. And it ended up being that they couldn't reach a verdict mm-hmm. for the first two trials for Sean. Right. And then Terry's trial, the main evidence against him were the fingerprints mm-hmm. that they lifted and found in John's car. And they said that the four prints from the same hand made at the same time were Terry's mm-hmm. after he shut the driver's side door after robbing John of his guns. Right. However, the fingerprint examiner said that this method for identifying cumulative points of comparison from different fingers is not at all standard practice. Mm-hmm. So it was a really weird, bizarre way that they came to identify these fingerprints Mm -hmm. and somehow connected them to Terry. Right. Prosecution also presented evidence that the day after John's murder, Terry moved the car from its usual parking location to the home of a friend's brother-in-law. And when the police found the car, they found that the appearance had been changed. Right. With the tinted windows removed and the license plates removed. Mm -hmm. And then the detective who had been present at Terry's interview testified and said that the final question asked to Terry during his initial interview was, are you the trigger man or is Sean? Oh. The detective said that Terry responded by nodding his head in an affirmative manner and that he had then stood up and rolled his eyes toward the ceiling. What? During the cross-examination, the detective changed his testimony and said that he asked Terry two separate questions. Whether he was the triggerman, which he said no to, right. and then asked whether Sean was the triggerman, to which he nodded yes. Okay, come on. Because Terry and his attorney didn't testify about this interview, all they had to go off of were the detective's version of events. Oh, God. On February 1st, 1995, a jury convicted Terry Patterson of first-degree murder, armed robbery, and illegal possession of a firearm. He was sentenced to life in prison. So in September of 1995, which was now two years after the murder of Detective Mulligan, a third trial took place for Sean Ellis. Here's the thing, though, about this third trial. There wasn't even a huge difference in the trial. There was no new evidence, for one thing. And two of the key witnesses for the prosecution who had testified in the other trials didn't testify at this one. So if anything, it helped the defense, right? Okay. So that makes it even more interesting for how this turned out. As you guys know, because this is called the exoneration of Sean Ellis. So the prosecution called up a whole bunch of witnesses. 
still, even though they didn't call up two who had testified before. Firstly, they called up Victor Brown, who happened to be the man that lived in the neighborhood across from the Walgreens. He was the one who woke up that morning, Sunday morning, 3.30 a.m., because he heard that brown Volkswagen rabbit backing up into the dead-end street. He was the one who got out, saw the car, thought that it was stolen, went down and talked to the woman in the back seat and said, hey, you all right? And she was like, um, yeah. And, you know, he was like, okay. The thing was, and you mentioned this, Katie, is that he had originally said 3.30. And then later he went back and said, you know what? I think it was more 3.20. The reason he said that was because the police actually convinced him that maybe he had changed to his clocks a little ahead so he wouldn't be late for things. So that's probably why he said 3.30 originally, but really it was like 3.20 in the morning. What? I know people do that and that's fine. But what? You're just going to be like, oh, yeah, the police, they said that. So I probably did it. Like, what? So when Victor Brown woke up to the sound of the car, he said he saw two African-American men walking out of the car. Now, when he was shown pictures of Sean or Terry, he could not identify them. Now, originally in his first interview when we was testifying, he said that the lighting in that neighborhood was so good from the streetlights, whatever, that, quote, if there was a coin on the sidewalk, I'd be able to tell you whether it was a nickel or a quarter. Really cool. Very specific. Super clear. But yet you couldn't tell me if this was Sean or Terry? Two men? Okay. Right. So that immediately takes away his credibility, first of all. And then he also described the two men in completely different outfits than what they were actually wearing. And then it also differed from what other witnesses said and what they saw. Also, he didn't see anyone run back to the car. He just said that he heard it. So he couldn't confirm that anyone made it back to the car, let alone if it was Sean or not. Could have very well been someone else. Could have been Terry. Could have been Terry and someone else. Could have been... One person, and it could have been not Terry or Sean. Right. It could have been Celine getting out of the backseat of the car and going to join them in the woods. Like, who knows? Who knows? The next piece of evidence that the prosecution used was the whole identification made by Rosa. And, you know, we all know this was super sketchy. Way sketchy. But don't worry. Detective Asera did disclose his personal relationship with Rosa. It just was two months later. So he got around to it. And that was good enough. Another suspicious thing about Rosa's story was her timeline. So during her testimony, she said she took 20 minutes to pick up a bar of soap from approximately like 3 a.m. to 3.20 a.m. She said it took so long, because I'm sure we were all thinking, why did it take you so fucking long to pick a bar of soap? Because she stopped and browsed the card aisle like you do at 3 a.m. Well, as we all know, this Walgreens was absolutely popping at 3 a.m. for whatever fucking reason. And there was another woman there named Deborah Cox. And she was also in the Walgreens card aisle. And she was here and testified and said that she was at this card aisle. And she was sitting down in the card aisle looking through cards at 3 a.m. And she said that uh, she was going through cards. She ended up Purchasing eight, which is, what girl, what are you stocking up for at 3 a.m.? Anyway, her credit card was charged at 3.14 a.m., right before Rosa. 
would have made her purchase. So she said she did not see Rosa at that time in the card aisle. So that immediately discredits Rosa's account saying she was in the card aisle. If this woman had been sitting there browsing through all the, sitting there looking at all the cards so much so that she had literally sat on the floor of a Walgreens at 3 a.m. That to me is pretty legit. I would trust that woman. Right. Like she's getting into it. She is really looking at every, she's listening to those cards that sing to you. She is reading the ones with the pictures of the pugs with their tongues sticking out saying, it's your goofy birthday or whatever. <laughs> she's in it. And she says she didn't see Rosa. I believe her for sure. Another thing that was kind of weird about Rosa's account was that there were conflicting reports about who had actually made the phone call to police saying she was a witness to at least somebody being around the car at the time of the murder. She claimed that she did not call in her witness information, but that someone in her family did. Yet her brother-in-law, who you'll never guess, was a Boston Police Department officer. His name was Elvis Garcia, insisted that Rosa herself had been the one to call in and report it. So now there's conflicting reports about how that information came to light. Could it have been something relating to step-uncle Kenny? Sure. Absolutely could have. I just feel, I feel so fucking sad for Rosa because she's 19 years old. Yes. She clearly is so pressured. Like, yes, she has no choice but to testify against Sean. She does not want to do this. Mm -hmm. She does not want to be a part of this. Mm -hmm. The court proceedings that were reenacted in the docu-series, mm -hmm. I think really did a good job because they depicted Rosa on the stand as like being anxious, avoiding mm -hmm. eye contact, yeah. fidgeting, and just being really sad, like saying things in just a really sad way. And like, she was really pressured and she's a teenage girl yeah. and this is her family. And mm. she can't not go against her family who worked for and with John Mulligan and now a police officer is murdered. And there's so much pressure with the public and the media and the cops around her and her family to help solve this. Like, mm. what's she going to do? Be like, Oh, just kidding. Yeah. I feel so bad for her. She was stuck in a really shitty situation. Ugh. Sean's girlfriend, Latia Walker, was also stuck in a really shitty situation. She testified at this third trial and, you know, they had brought up the fact that, you know, we just convicted Terry with this fingerprint evidence. Guess what, guys? We found another fingerprint. Mm. Latia Walker's fingerprint. On the 25 caliber pearl-handled pistol, mm. which we learn was John Mulligan's personal pistol he kept on an ankle holster. Mm. Latia testified under a grant of immunity from prosecution and said that four days after John's murder on September 30th, 1993, she and Sean went to Tracy Brown's apartment and Sean grabbed a bag with two guns, the 25 caliber, the pearl handle pistol, and the 9mm Glock semi-automatic that was the police department-issued gun. Mm -hmm. Sean then brought the guns to Latia's house where their friend Kurt Hedon hid them under leaves in the vacant lot by Sean's place mm -hmm. where we know they were found. Right. Kurt himself was unable to testify his account because he had been shot and killed in front of his own home prior to the trial starting. Oh, that's awful. Which is like devastating. Yeah. Latia had a young son who at the start of her involvement in this case was brought up to her by police. Yeah. He wasn't in the room, no involvement whatsoever. She's giving police her account. They're questioning her because she's dating Sean Ellis. Right. And they're like, so 
you have a young son. And she's like, oh shit. Yeah. They implied multiple times and implied heavily Mm -hmm. that if she did not do them a solid and testify against her boyfriend, they would notify social services and have her son removed from her custody. I know if I was in that situation, I would do anything. Yep. And I think the police knew that too. And that's what she said. She said, you know, this is my child. I love my boyfriend. I know he didn't do this. I feel so bad. Like this, this is just horrendous. But at the end of the day, this is my kid. And who is she going to tell the police? (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Your besties are threatening to take away my child. Right. Who are you going to call? Right. (laughs) The cops. Right. That are literally doing this whole thing? Mm -hmm. No way. Yeah. So there's a few reasons I call bullshit on this story for Tia. And not necessarily, I want to believe that she only told the story because she was being forced. I really think she was innocent in this. And there's a lot of obvious reasons. How would Sean have gone to his cousin's apartment to get these guns? Let's think about this. Detective Mulligan was shot and killed. Three days later, Tracy Brown and Celine Kirk were killed in their apartment. If Sean went and got those guns four days after Detective John Mulligan was killed, that would mean that Sean went to the apartment of his cousins one day after they were murdered. AKA, he would have broken into an active crime scene where no doubt there was a active crime scene tape, probably investigators, no doubt he would not have access or even the ability to be able to go into that apartment. No way. How would he have gotten those guns? It's just not possible. So that story does not check out. Unfortunately, on September 14th in 1995, all of this evidence came to a head and proved enough for the jury. They found Sean Ellis guilty of first-degree murder and robbery and gave him a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Just heartbreaking. He went through three trials, all of this bullshit, and he was still found guilty. And he, I can't imagine how powerless Ugh. he must have felt. Because not only is he up against just anyone, he's up against the Boston Police Department. Oof. So no bad. way. So bad. In February of 1996, the Boston Police Anti-Corruption Unit, which, <laughs> that's kind of ironic because they're going to have to investigate every single one of their fucking officers, yeah. but to each their own. Sure. They had begun investigating several of their own detectives, including Detective Kenneth Asera, Detective Walter Robinson. Oh, wow. The, hmm, Wait a second. Where have we heard those names that's before? Familiar. They were being investigated for robbing drug dealers. Oh. Huh. Wait. That doesn't sound like protecting and serving to me, does it? No. Kind of sounds like they're committing a crime. Committing a lot of crimes, yeah. If you guys somehow have amnesia and aren't (laughs) picking up where those names are from, these are the very two same clowns that manipulated and brought Rosa Sanchez to the station personally, brought her out into their car for a little pep talk, Mm -hmm. and then had her march her ass in Mm -hmm. and immediately identify Sean Ellis, causing this whole situation. Yep. These two men are also some of the main detectives working the Mulligan murder investigation, 
which is very odd because they are not homicide detectives at all, but narcotics officers. Now, what are narcotics officers doing on a homicide case? You know, Katie, I was always under the impression that narcotics was another word for drugs and drug paraphernalia. Am I wrong in thinking that? You are correct as always, Liz. Oh, so why are they on? And homicide, correct me if I'm wrong, means murder? Ding, ding, ding. So this? I don't know much, Katie, but I know that those two words are not synonyms. So why the fuck are they working on this case? That'd be like taking care of your mom as a patient in a hospital. It's not appropriate. It's just not. Right. Absolutely. It's not. Okay. Like you said at the top of the episode, Liz, the unit had received complaints of corruption against multiple Boston police officers. But the officer who got the blue ribbon for the most complaints against him for corruption was none other than John Mulligan. Right. Dun-dun. Dun-dun. In October of 1997, a federal grand jury indicted Walter and Kenneth on numerous charges, including, but not limited to, the falsification of search warrants and the theft of thousands of dollars from drug dealers dating all the way back to 1990. Yikes. They both pled guilty. Don't worry. They were sentenced to, wait for it, three years in prison. Hmm. That's enough. Three whole years. Pathetic. Detective John Brazel was granted immunity in return for his testimony against those two other bozos, but he too admitted that he had prepared false affidavits for search warrants, falsely claimed to have performed surveillance when he had not, mm. and participated in robberies with Kenneth Asera and Walter Robinson. Now, falsifying affidavits, that, that's pretty serious. Mm. Hey, wait, wasn't the affidavit in this case with Sean and Terry falsified? Wait a second. With the nodding? Wait. And wait a second. Didn't you say that these were narcotics officers? You got it. This is really, this is really weird. Something's not adding up. A lot of things are not adding up right now. And these guys, oh my God, I was reading how they would, like, they had routine. They had a routine. This is something they did often. And they were paying people off so they could do this corrupt shit. Literally. And they targeted people who were vulnerable. And I think that's why they thought they could all get away with this. And I think that for the longest time they were like, Wiping their hands over, they were like, we are good to go. Black people taking the fall for us. We got this. Because they always, what they would do was they would get false search warrants, false affidavits. They would get access to the apartments and homes of drug dealers, illegal immigrants, and be like, give us your drugs. Give us your money. In exchange, we won't tell anyone that what you're doing. And that was that. They'd get all this blow and all this money. Great. Right, right. And then after arrests, you know, you've seen those pictures on police department Facebooks and social media, whatever, their halls, mm-hmm. quote unquote, with stacks and stacks of $100 bills and huge bags of weed and drug paraphernalia. Yes. You were supposed to profile all of that and like keep a record of what you, yeah. So when these guys are being investigated 
it was so interesting because they kept finding that drugs mm-hmm. and money were missing. Mm-hmm. So these guys were not only raking in a shit ton of overtime, mm-hmm. especially John Mulligan doing that bullshit security detail where he slept on the cloth. Yeah. Cops make bank on security detail. Let me tell you that right now. Yeah, they do. They were forging hours. They were doing this shit just for funsies at this point. And then they were raking in the dough by stealing stacks and stacks of cash from drug dealers mm-hmm. that they're threatening and blackmailing. Yeah. That doesn't sound like protecting and serving to me. No, it does not. A year later, Sean's attorneys filed a motion for a new trial based on the disclosure of the corrupt ass behavior from Kenneth, Walter, and John Brazil, mm-hmm. who, as we know, were heavily involved in Sean's case. Mm-hmm. This motion was denied without a hearing. So dumb. It escalated to the Supreme Court, where they upheld the dismissal in December of 2000, saying that there was no proof that the detectives had falsified any evidence on this case. This same month, the Supreme Judicial Court reversed Terry's convictions, saying that he was deprived of crucial evidence when his defense attorney failed to be called as a witness to rebuke the detective's statements of what happened during his interview, Mm. where he made up Terry nodding his head yes when asked if Sean was the triggerman. Mm. Before the retrial, Terry's lawyers challenged the fingerprints and said they were unreliable. This was initially denied, but in 2005, the Supreme Judicial Court reversed this and said that they would not allow the fingerprint evidence at the retrial. They called the method of analysis, quote, unscientific and unreliable, and they actually also ruled that this method could not ever be used again in the state of Massachusetts. Wow. Terry pled guilty to manslaughter in February of 2006, which he was pressured to do. Yeah, of course. And was released in 2007 after receiving credit for time served. So that was his, you know, not really motive, but that's what was promised to him. Like, plead guilty and you'll get out of jail sooner. Yeah. Whereas for Sean Ellis, he was like, I'm sorry, I'm not pleading guilty to anything because I know I didn't do this. Right. And in my conscience and in my heart, I'm not going to plead guilty to something I know I didn't do. Yeah. Just to get out of jail sooner. I'm... Like, I'm in here, it sucks, but I did not do this, and I stand by that. I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do. Right. Attorney Rosemary Scapiccio had taken over Sean's case and started almost immediately submitting requests under the Freedom of Information Act to city, state, and federal agencies seeking additional information about officers John Mulligan, Kenneth Becerra, Walter Robinson, and John Brazel. In 2010, she sought help from the Massachusetts Committee for Public Counsel Services and its Wrongful Conviction Review Fund, and her case was accepted and the funds began flowing so that she could provide more investigation and get public records requested. Hell yeah. She filed a second motion for a new trial in March of 2013, saying that both the prosecution and police failed to disclose evidence of other possible suspects. They also failed to disclose evidence, including FBI reports, (laughs) and federal grand jury testimony showing that John Mulligan was deeply involved in the corrupt activities of the three cop criminals, Kenneth Acera, Walter Robinson, and John Brazel. Mm. You guys, one of the main characters in this whole case is Rosemary, and Mm -hmm. she comes up in this documentary. You guys need to watch this, even just for her. She's awesome. She is a bad bitch. She has her hair, it's like short and platinum blonde, Uh spiky. It's cool. She was just the only way I can describe her line of questioning in court over and over and over was relentless. Mm-hmm. You know, being a female too, like mm-hmm. men love to talk over us. They uh, love to just, and police officers too, love to be like the big man in the room. Mm-hmm. She would not let them 
cut her off, yeah. talk over her, interrupt her. She'd be like, I wasn't finished. Yeah. And I'd like, keep questioning I them. Love that. She's a bad bitch. And this was all in pursuit of justice for Sean. She was so passionate. You know, she was not going to take no for an answer. She was not going to take any bullshit because mm-hmm. she knew that he was innocent and she was not going to stop until they got his ass exonerated. Yeah. At a hearing, evidence was presented that pointed to the fact that another police officer was responsible for John Mulligan's murder. Among the evidence was a statement from Detective George Foley, a member of the Mulligan Murder Task Force. Hmm. George Foley said that in August, the month before John's murder, a corrections officer named Ray Armstead Jr. told George that his father, Ray Armstead Sr., was going to kill John Mulligan. What? Ray's father's reasoning for killing John was that John had a reputation for being a pedophile. Of course he did. He was attracted to young girls. He had a history of harassing young girls. He hired underage sex workers Mm. and paid them off in drugs and money. Mm. And fun fact... One of the witnesses we talked about in the beginning of the episode that saw a white woman sitting in the passenger seat of his car Uh before he was shot having a heated conversation. Yeah, that was his girlfriend. Oh. Who was really pissed at him for cheating on her. Oh, God. With underage sex workers. Yeah. Now, they initially thought it was the girlfriend that shot him because of this, not her. Yeah. I really feel for her, but man, her, her boyfriend was a piece of shit. Yeah, he was. Ray Armstead Sr., said that he had a 14-year-old daughter and that John Mulligan was refusing to leave her alone. Yikes. He also knew that John was a lazy bastard who slept in his car on duty. And Ray Jr., the the son, Mm -hmm. told George, quote, you're going to read about it in the papers, shot between the eyes at Walgreens. Yikes. Police reports showed that Ray Armstead Jr. had been questioned about the conversation with George Foley And Ray denied it had ever happened, and he said that he did not have a 14-year-old sister. It was revealed later that Ray Sr. did not have a 14-year-old biological child, but that he was fostering a 14-year-old girl. Mm. So you didn't lie, but you tell the truth. Correct. (laughs) When uh, Rosemary learned of this information, ooh. I can even imagine. Oh, boy. She presented evidence that the police didn't take George seriously when he told them this information. He was sticking by his story. He's like, you guys, another cop is going to shoot him in the face Mm -hmm. when he's sleeping on his security detail. Mm -hmm. Sergeant Detective Daniel Keeler, who led the investigation into George's tip, decided that George was lying about the entire thing, stripped him of his gun and his badge, and had him admitted to Pembroke Hospital for a psychiatric evaluation and treatment. Wow. This is what happens when the cops who speak up and try to do the right thing come forward. This is why we say ACAB, because you can have all the good cops in the world and they are not going to be taken seriously. They're going to be thrown in a psychiatric hospital, stripped of their gun and their badge for going against their boys in blue. And then they'll never do it again. This is what happens. Mm -hmm. This is why they don't speak up. This is why they get away with all this shit. And this happens not just in Boston, but in every police department Everywhere. Everywhere. Mm -hmm. George was released from the hospital 21 days later and put back on the force. But by the time he got back, the lead he provided about the whole situation had passed. Like, it was done. Yeah. 
Rosemary Scapiccio stated, quote, here we have motive, opportunity, and the third-party culprit, but Keeler decides it's nothing. A federal grand jury indictment stated that just 17 days before John Mulligan was murdered, he joined Kenneth Sarah and Walter Robinson to steal $26,000 from a well-known Boston drug dealer. Jesus Christ. The FBI also had a report from an informant that John Mulligan regularly shook down drug dealers and sex workers for money and that he blackmailed other cops. Not surprising at all with what we've learned. The informant also ticked off the FBI that John Mulligan himself had committed murder. That doesn't surprise me either. The police hotline for the Mulligan murder investigation also received a tip. And this tip said that a man named Armstead was responsible for John's murder, but they never looked into this. Hmm. We could do a full podcast episode on the crimes that John Mulligan and the other three cop criminals committed. Yeah. It is like a laundry list. Yeah. In 2015, the unthinkable happened. It was May 5th, and Suffolk Superior Court Justice Carol S. Ball vacated Sean Ellis' convictions of first-degree murder and armed robbery, resulting in the death of Detective John Mulligan. One month later, Sean was released on $50,000 bail with an ankle monitor. He had spent almost 22 years in jail. That's a long time. Like, holy shit. After a long hearing filled with evidence of the corruption of the police officers and how horribly messed up all of that was and how it clearly intertwined with his case. Sean was represented by, of course, this wonderful Rosemary. Oh my gosh, she's such a badass. I love her. The final decision was made, of course. Sean Ellis was allowed a fourth trial. Finally, something new. Get rid of all this bullshit. Let's, we have years and years of proof now that these cops were so corrupt. Let's use all that and give them a new trial. On December 17th, 2018, District Attorney John Pappas and Boston Police Commissioner William Gross held a live stream press conference where they suddenly announced that they dropped all charges against Sean Ellis for the murder of Detective John Mulligan. However, they did not exonerate him. They said that they truly believed Sean played some part in his murder, just that a fourth retrial would end the same way because of how deeply tangled those corrupt officers were with the investigation. However, he was allowed to get rid of his ankle bracelet, and technically speaking, he was a free man. In May of 2021, based on a motion by the Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins, the convictions for the weapon charges were vacated, and then she then dismissed the charges. After 21 years, 7 months, and 29 days in prison, 41-year-old Sean Ellis was exonerated. He was wrongfully charged with the murder at the age of 19. Mm. Unfortunately, this was not the first exoneration for police misconduct at the hands of the Boston PD and likely will not be the last. In the year 2000, Danell Johnson, who was convicted of murder in 1994, was exonerated. One of the men who interviewed him and led to his false imprisonment was Detective Daniel Keeler, who had George Foley committed to a psych hospital. Mm. Keeler himself was also involved in two other murder exonerations, partly due to his own misconduct 
Marlon Pasley, who was exonerated in the year 2000, he served four years in prison, and Sean Jenkins, who was exonerated in 2021 after serving 20 years in prison. We also, of course, covered the exoneration of Ulysses Charles on our 89th episode, who was released in 2001 after wrongfully serving 17 years in prison after he was targeted and harassed Mm -hmm. by Boston police officers. In addition, in 2021, James Lucian was exonerated of a murder conviction after wrongfully serving 27 years in prison Mm. based on the corrupt activities of none other than Detective John Brazel. Mm. Sean Ellis settled a lawsuit against the city of Boston for $16 million in 2021. That's nothing. He deserves so much more than that. Almost 22 years of his fucking life. Gone. Yeah. Now... Sean Ellis is an amazing man because he turned this awful story into something so good because he's not only a motivational speaker, but he's a trustee on the board for the New England Innocence Project, which is amazing. He also is a co-founder of the Exoneree Network, which is also amazing. And he also received the 2021 Boston Mountaintop Award for his role in advocacy related to Black innocence within the criminal justice system. Wow. Which is amazing. Good for him. What a very resilient, tough man who lost so many years of his life needlessly because of an errand he was running for his cousins, who then were murdered, completely unrelated. Mm-hmm. Awful. And the fact that he and Terry were arrested after the cousin's funeral, like, still in their suits immediately leaving. Yeah. While they're trying to grieve. Awful stuff. After his release, Sean wrote a statement titled, Wounded But Not Broken. This is just a passage from that. Quote, my name is Sean Ellis, and I was wrongfully convicted and imprisoned for nearly 22 years for a crime I did not commit. I've been through a horrendous ordeal, and as a result, I have been deeply hurt. I have been vilified in the public eye. I have suffered injuries. I have suffered pain, and I have suffered tremendous loss. However, despite this grave injustice, I refuse to be broken. I am unwilling to allow these trials and tribulations to define who I am or put me in a space of inertia or defeatism. This concept of being wounded but not broken isn't isolated to those who have suffered at the hands of the criminal legal system. It encompasses those who have endured whatever hardships that life has thrown at them and has pushed back against it, refusing to let it crush them and sought a path towards healing. It's beautiful. That's like so, that's so beautiful. Uh, Got a little teary-eyed at the end of that, but... I feel so bad for him. I just, I can't. It was, he was at the wrong place at the wrong time, times a billion. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just awful. And, you know, he's so incredible and resilient, but Mm -hmm. he he shouldn't have to be. I know. It was so horrendous. And just Rosemary Scapiccio, absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, definitely watch the documentary, you guys. Mm -hmm. Sean himself is in it, giving his Mm -hmm. own accounts. Latia is part of it. Sean's mom, Rosemary... And then the woman that did the website, Justice for Sean Ellis, she's a big part of it. She's really, really cool. That's awesome. Well, guys, obviously this is a very, very long episode with a lot of information, a lot of names, a lot of stuff. But I think probably one of our deepest, most fascinating cases we've ever covered. So I hope you guys liked it. Obviously, we hope you liked it because it's really important. And Sean Ellis's story is just one of many in America. And he serves as a great example of taking his terrible, terrible story and using it for good. Again, he shouldn't have to do that. You know, he's a strong, strong man. 
please, we invite you to tell us what you think about the story, your opinions on the case, all aspects of the case, really. You can find us on Instagram at truecrimeny. All lowercase. And you can send us an email at truecrimeny at gmail.com. We, of course, have a website, truecrimene.com. You can go to our contact page and use our handy-dandy submission tool. That is a great way to be anonymous. You can leave us your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, please, about this case, other cases we've covered. This is now the third or fourth exoneration we have covered. Go back and check them out, especially Ulysses Charles. Mm -hmm. His daughter recently reached out to us and let us know that he has passed. Mm -hmm. And she said that she was she came across our episode and was pretty grateful for the coverage, which was really amazing. Yes. So it's so important that we get these cases out there. This is just a fraction, just a drop in the lake that is the wrongful incarceration of black men. It's such a fucking crisis. Tell us your thoughts. Let us know how you thought we did on this episode. And yeah, thank you guys so much for listening always, but especially for cases like this. Yes, we always appreciate you. And uh, with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.